My next speaker is Jen Unwin, and I'm really excited to hear her talk. Um, Dr. Jen Unwin is a consultant clinical health psychologist. Hello. Um, and she's got over 30 years of NHS experience. She's worked alongside her husband, David Unwin, and helped numerous patients manage their chronic disease and um, achieve well-being and empowered patients to make lifestyle changes. She specialises in helping patients with sugar addiction, and she spent the last few years researching this area and working in this area. And she has recently just launched her new book. Is that right, Jen? Yeah, it's just come out this week, so it's really exciting. It's my lockdown baby. So it's called uh, it's called Fork in the Road, and it's um it's yeah it's really a guide for people who feel they have sugar or, or food addiction. It's written with a lot of other experts, international experts in the in the field, but it's um it's a nice simple book, so you can recommend it to to patients if you think it might help them. And again, profits go to the Public Health Collaboration. It's it's uh, no profits to David and I. Fantastic. So we will have to put that on our resource shelf in our um, on our website that we showcase in a bit. But um, but I'm really excited to hear you talk. I recently listened to a podcast of Professor Tom Noakes and he said you can't maintain a low carb diet if you are addicted to sugar. So it's really important to understand sugar addiction, how to recognise it and how to advise patients to optimise their um, sort of maintenance of a healthy diet. So thank you very much, Jen. And I'm looking forward to hearing your talk. Great, shall I go ahead and share screen, screen share? That would be lovely. Um, there we go. For some reason it's starting right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go to the let's go to the top, folks. Okay. So we can yeah. see that. So is that all fine? Can everyone and everyone can hear me? That's brilliant. Right, so yes, sugar and food addiction, my my favourite topic, and um, I think David's got more and more interested in it as well. So as you say, exactly that. If people, um, lots of people try a low carb diet or a keto diet, it's an incredibly kind of popular thing to do. I think, isn't it? Keto's kind of one of the most popular things to adopt now. Um, but I think if people have a problem with sugar or food addiction and those are often the people that gravitate to those kinds of um you know those kinds of diets to try them um and they 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 can't they they may struggle to stick to it so i'm hoping to sort of explain perhaps some of why that might be and what kind of advice um you know you can give to people and again those is having those resources isn't it and, and just um being able to point people in the right uh direction so um, this is what I'm going to be um, covering. I'm just uh, trying to move the thing so I can see my screen. Yeah. So we're going to um, cover in the next 30 minutes, you know, try, uh, understanding what is food, carb or sugar addiction. Um, there's um, people use, use these terms sort of interchangeably. Most of the research um, is on, it, it, it would be titled food addiction. Um, but generally it's the sugars and the carbohydrates, um, which we now think are the sort of addictive components of, of, of nutrition. So you will see it sort of referred to as those other things. Also, people sometimes say processed food addiction or ultra processed food addiction. Um, what are the mechanisms? Because I think it kind of helps to understand, well, um, you know, if this is a thing, how, how is it that some people um, struggle with it? 
and what are the links to obesity type 2 and eating disorders so we can kind of understand how they all relate to each other and then give you just some suggestions for sort of advice and management that that you can pass on to people and and resources for them to sort of um uh, follow up themselves why isn't my screen oh right there we go yes okay so if um if you google food addiction you'll see that there are 266 million possible results so uh somebody's interested in this topic obviously it's not included we know it's not included in the dsm-5 or the um, icd-10 as an official diagnosis but um it really looks like somebody's interested the public are interested in this topic and it's i think if you ask the man or woman in the street if certain foods can be addictive they they would say yes and in common parlance we all say oh god i'm addicted to chocolate and stuff like that don't we so um in some ways it, it seems like the world is a, a little bit behind um a little bit behind the, the public on this and uh you know obviously there's there's reasons for that the the food industry don't want us to think that food is addictive that wouldn't be in their interests so there's no official diagnosis of carb uh, food or sugar addiction despite the general population um acknowledging it, its existence so what we're going to do is um a, a, a little quiz so you can you can you can play along um personally and answer these questions for yourself but maybe also think of think of some of the patients that you've met in the past who perhaps struggle with their own relationship with food so i want you to count up how many of the following 11 statements apply to you now or maybe in the past if you've already uh, gone low carb it may be that that you have improved your relationship with food the substance in question i'm going to be asking about is sugars starchy carbohydrates and ultra processed foods so things like biscuits uh crisps pizzas donuts whatever it is that that might be your drug of choice so have you found yourself taking the substance in larger amounts or for longer than you intended so just keep a note if that if you feel that would apply to you have you wanted to cut down or quit eating certain foods the sort of foods we were talking about and and not being able to have you spent a lot of time you know thinking about and um obtaining the substance have you experienced a craving or a strong desire for the substance so it's difficult to you know that's kind of caused you to then then go and eat it when you didn't want to have you been unable to carry out obligations at work school or home because of consuming those kinds of foods have you continued to use foods despite are persistent social or interpersonal problems linked to the substance have you stopped or reduced important social occupational or recreational activities due to use of the substance have you used the substance in hazardous situations and people sometimes laugh about this but i used to unwrap chocolate bars that i bought at the garage while i was driving along and i know a lot of other people eat as they're driving which isn't exactly safe and i've spoken to other people who said that you know after a, a night shift they would go out 
in places that weren't uh, particularly safe, perhaps looking for um, fast food joints that they were uh, that were open so that they could eat their eat what the thing that they wanted to eat. So um, it seems a, a, a funny thing, but it, it, I think it can apply to food as well as obviously other drugs. Um, have you experienced consistent use of the substance despite acknowledgement of persistent physical or psychological difficulties arising from use? Um, I mean, hopefully some people have patients that are kind of popping to mind where they think, think this might be the case. Uh, a need for increased amounts of the substance to get the same desired effect. So that's the, obviously the sort of tolerance effect of needing more and more to, to get the same effect. Cravings and other physical symptoms of withdrawal if the substance isn't available. So shakiness, hangry is what we say, isn't it? Uh, and that those symptoms are relieved by consumption. So you, you just feel better if you have your chocolate bar or your, your, your bottle of Coke. Okay, so those questions actually come from the DSF-5. They're the criteria for substance use disorder, and you'll be familiar with those for um, alcohol and drugs. Um, the DSM-5 suggests that if you in, had two or three of those symptoms, that would be a mild pathological use. Four to five would be a moderate pathological use and six plus out of those 11 would suggest severe pathological use. And um, let me tell you, I was in the six plus uh, quite a few times in my life. Uh, so I, I personally really identify with this um, difficult, absolute difficulty, despite wanting to, you know, being able to moderate a relationship with, with sugar and carbohydrate. So um, just going a little bit deeper into this question of, well, you know, it's, it, it, it seems like um, people do have that addictive relationship with food. I know I certainly did, and I know lots of people that I've spoken to um, that that do. Um, but what does the literature say? So I did a I did a search in PubMed at the end of last year um, for sugar or food and addiction, and I found two hundred and seventy one articles. Fifty were concerning the debate over the existence of food addiction and 72 were looking at the prevalence of food addiction using the main measure in this field, which is the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Um, there were 19 papers on treatment and there were 130 on all kinds of other topics. So that's that's maybe for another day. Um, there is, an, you know, clearly an increasing interest in this area. And if you look at the number of papers that were published in different years, the number of papers is going up you know, kind of looks like almost exponentially from 2008 to, to last year, uh, the, quite a significant number of papers. It's about 60 papers um, published last year on this topic. So on the question of does sugar and food exist, addiction exist, if you look at the papers um, of the total 50 papers, 70% um, came down on the side of yes in their conclusions, uh, 16 maybe, uh, you know, kind of more research needed and um, a few papers, um, seven out of the 50 papers uh, arguing against it as a concept. Um, there are some debates in the literature, for example, is, is food addiction a substance addiction like alcohol 
drugs or is it a process addiction like gambling um obviously that's a, a reasonably important debate because it might suggest different kinds of treatment approaches so you tend to suggest abstinence for uh, a substance addiction and maybe psychological treatments for a process addiction but actually in a way it's a false dichotomy because there's always both um, there tend to be both things involved in addiction and you would always advise abstinence actually uh, with an addiction problem even if it's a process addiction like gambling um, some researchers say that food addiction doesn't meet all the criteria for, for addiction um, for example withdrawal symptoms are only being studied in animals and opponents would say that more research is needed it's actually just an eating disorder i'm going to address that in a minute um, and that no single nutrient has been shown to be addictive in humans uh, one of the main papers which um, is against this concept of um, sugar addiction and has been much cited is the west water paper 2016 uh, when i looked into it the article had been sponsored by rip health the sponsors of rip health a craft coca-cola dr pepper blah blah, blah. Um, and um, Dr. Rip received a personal huge retainer. And all of this evidence is, it was in the New York Times in 2014. You can Google it um, yourself. Dr. Rip presented um, at a conference um, about the harmlessness of high fructose corn syrup for children. So that probably tells us uh, most of what we need to know. So uh, obviously it's, um, it's an area which is fraught with um, politics and uh, vested interests. What are the possible mechanisms then if we're going to say it might be, um, you know, it might be possible to be addicted to sugar and carbohydrate. And here are some of them that I'm, I'm going to whiz through. Um, so you'll hear about each of these in a little bit more detail. Um, foods are designed, um, processed foods are designed to be hyper palatable that they, they do it in a lab. Um, we know that for a fact, and you can see all the ingredients there that go into um, making Pringles. I mean, it can't really even be seen as food. It's more like a kind of uh, chemical cocktail. Um, we know that sweet sensations are very intensely um, pleasurable and that that's probably a, a evolutionarily driven um, drive to, 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 to seek out sweet foods um help us to sort of um, get through periods of starvation particularly in the winter some of us seem to be more susceptible than others and it definitely seems to to often run in families this this uh, addictive relationship with food um we we live in an environment which is utterly saturated with sweetness and is not at all normal in terms of how we um of how we evolved and anything refined tends to you know would tend to add to its addictive properties so uh, cocaine comes from uh, coca and op opium from the poppy sugar is obviously a refined product even though it's a com come from a natural source it's it's a refined product product um tryptophan is the precursor of serotonin and uh, as we know that's our feel-good neurotransmitter it normally competes with other molecules to get into your brain, but in the presence of high insulin, it'll be preferentially taken up. So obviously if we eat sweet foods, uh, insulin goes up, more tryptophan crossing the blood brain barrier, 
more serotonin and that's why we feel relaxed sleepy and happy after christmas dinner um the problem is that is this repeated on a very um you know very often that the, the brain uh, down regulates the the receptors for serotonin of course that's not a great thing and um that leads to increased consumption but also further low mood and um <clears throat> there's a definite link between sugar consumption and levels of depression and this is this is um probably why um tryptophan is found in nuts cheese and red meat so it's all good it's all good if you're on a low carb diet because hopefully you'd be eating plenty of those dopamine also incredibly important in reward motivation and and mood um and it is we know that it is released on consumption of sugar and again if you if you're hitting hitting the sugar hard every day your brain will down regulate um as exactly as happens in other addictions like alcohol and and drugs and um so uh, that might be partly what leads to withdrawal symptoms cravings etc and there's a really famous often quoted study by nicola vina who's a uh, a big researcher in in the states in the area of food addiction where they addicted animal uh, lab animals i think they were rats to sugar and cocaine and then gave them a choice and they 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 chose the sugar um so this dopamine effect also explains why once people have this difficulty they tend to just focus um a lot on on food and give up other um activities and they it's kind of get obsessed with the with the food um that's because dopamine is as i say very much linked to reward and motivation and the the brain will drive you to pursue the thing that's giving you that dopamine hit um from a psychology point of view behaviors that reduce any negative feeling states are reinforced i mean uh, we we know that for sure and those behaviors like to be repeat repeated so consuming sugar does often relieve withdrawal show slow low sugar symptoms um and therefore is a reinforced behavior so these pathways in our brain are being kind of reinforced all the time um and this is exactly the same with other drugs and it might be of special importance to people with type 1 because of course they have a, a, an additional anxiety about low sugar low blood sugar um so that's that's uh, just food for thought i mean look this stuff is actually marketed as <laughs> as a, a kind of fix or a you know a, a, a pick me up uh, a sort of um uh, kind of almost acknowledging that you do get withdrawal symptoms if if you're not having it um yeah i think cultural and economic factors are, are, are really important um the, the the world we live in has become so saturated with sugar cake processed foods junk foods this this sort of treat yourself culture which has been obviously presumably uh, facilitated by the food industry office cake is a massive thing a any workplace seems to have um you know a, a place where all the biscuits and the cakes are kept um the general food environment so poor for a lot of people supermarket aisle, whole supermarket aisles i never go down now that are just full of stuff that you don't need to eat every celebration seems to focus around cake uh holidays you know it's the supersizing culture 
um, you know, when people are stressed, they, they're turning to this stuff. And also added to that, you've got this kind of virtue signaling around, look, they're trying to make Ben and Jerry's look like it's really good because it's caring dairy. Um, yeah, say no more. Okay. Impulsivity has been another process that's been implicated. A number of studies have found high levels of impulsivity in people scoring high on food addiction. But my question is, is that a, a cause or an effect? High sugar diets have been shown um, both in people and animals to directly affect parts of the brain, particularly their nucleus accumbens, which is involved in reward and motivation. They, they kind of, you know, and, and also there's a sort of dampening down of the prefrontal cortex. So both of those things would act together to increase impulsivity. So we need some studies looking at whether that improves in recovering uh, sugar addicts before we decide that impulsivity is a, a cause rather than a, an effect. Okay, so how prevalent is this problem? 72 articles used the Yale Food Addiction Scale in various populations. Uh, there was a review in 2014 which found about 20% of subjects um, in various samples um, would come out as classified as um, food addiction. Uh, it's more prevalent in um, younger people, females um, and people who are overweight in clinical samples, understandably. Here's the interesting fact about um, bulimia and binge eating disorder that there's a massive overlap with, with food addiction. 96% um, of this uh, sample had, had food addiction. Um, and there's a, a general population study there from Germany, which came out as 8%. Usually it's found a little bit higher than that, but I thought it was interesting to put that one in. How about the prevalence of food addiction in type 2 diabetes? Well, we've not got much, um, there's not many papers on that. And this, there's two here that are very have very opposing uh, prevalence rates. Uh, Raymond and Lovell, 70%, and Yang et al, just uh, about 9%. Okay, in terms of um, treatment, um, lots of suggestions for how we might treat people with food addiction. Um, but really not a lot of data um, and that's partly because this isn't a recognised uh, condition so there isn't a lot of um, funding for research so there are some studies suggesting um, CBT and treating it you know like, um, like an eating disorder. Um, here's the, the few actual studies that we've, we've uh, got um, bariatric surgery does seem to help people certainly initially experience fewer symptoms um, of food addiction but um, I, I think we know that over time people people tend to drift back and also being diagnosed with food addiction before bariatric surgery does predict poorer outcomes from that surgery actually. Um, there was a psycho psychosocial education intervention, but still people had a lot of problems afterwards. So uh, that didn't kind of work out uh, very well. Um, there was some difference in um, yeah, low calorie diet, um, but we don't actually know how many 
because if it was very low calorie, it might have actually been low carbs, even though it was 50% carbs, like, like the shake diets are actually low carb in terms of the actual grams of carbs. Um, yeah, um, and uh, there was a case series in 2020, um, which had really good results with, um, with a low carb diet. Um, and this is an excellent paper, low carb uh, ketogenic therapy is a metabolic treatment for binge eating and ultra processed food addiction. And they give all the science and the background about why this might be a good idea. Although there's only that one case series to, to support this approach, obviously it makes complete sense if the thing that people can't moderate and the thing that, that's actually um, having an effect in the, in the brain um, is the sugar and the, and the carbohydrates which digest down into sugar, then it makes uh, complete sense that um, a well-formulated, healthy, low-carb ketogenic diet would be the recommendation for people um, with this problem. And that, that certainly would be, would be my suggestion. So in terms of um, you busy GPs, suggestions for what, what you might do, um, I think if you if you suspect this, maybe if people have had a lifetime of dieting and then putting weight back on, uh, if they have real problems moderating their the food intake uh, along the lines of those questions at the beginning, um, you might consider screening them with the Yale Food Addiction Scale, which is only a short scale. Or this, I'm going to show you, this is called UNCOPE, and this comes from the ICD-10 criteria and was developed by Bitten Johnson, who's internationally very well known in this field. And it's kind of easy to remember because UNCOPE stands for unplanned use was, you know, did, did they eat more than they wanted to? Um, N for neglected, did they find themselves kind of focusing on um, foods rather than, you know, other things in their life or giving up other things? Did they struggle to cut down? Um, had anyone else objected to their eating habits? you know, family or friends? Did they find themselves preoccupied with wanting those foods? And did they use um, sweets and foods to relieve emotional discomfort, um, which is a really common outcome? So you might consider those, those questions if you have people who you think that might be relevant to. And then the advice is like any addiction, abstinence. So you wouldn't tell an alcoholic to have a moderate amount of whiskey or just a small whiskey on the weekend, um, just as you wouldn't tell a, a, a full-on sugar and uh, carbohydrate addict to to moderate, to just have um, one biscuit or, you know, um, a cheat day. Um, abstinence is, is, is the only way. And when people manage to follow that, they will notice that the cravings and the other difficulties um, recede into the background. So it has to be this real food focus, not fake food. Um, a lot of keto plans say, you know, you can have a cheat day. Well, that wouldn't apply to this population. Uh, and also you'd be very cautious about recommending um, time-restricted eating or, or much fasting. They tend not to do well with that. Sweeteners are also uh, need, would need to be given up eventually just because they, they keep that um, sweet craving going you really see that i really see that in the people that i work with they might want to think of it as a kind of <laughs> methadone like model where you would you go on to sweeteners to get off sugar because obviously that's an improvement but but always accept that they need to be
point as well in the end. And the focus isn't really weight loss, although that will probably come along for the ride, but in terms of stabilizing their eating, getting these neurotransmitters to calm down, educating them about the fact that it is an addiction. I think that really helps a lot of people to feel less stigmatized, to feel that it's not their fault, you know, that they've got this problem. There's lots of support out there, you know, I'm going to talk about as well, so that they can get in touch with other people who have the same problem. Um, it's important to get those that dopamine and that serotonin in other ways. So conversations about, um, you know, any kind of exercise is a really good way to get those things, any kind of stress management, any sort of hobbies that they enjoy. It's about sort of broadening out their lives again. Be really careful with alcohol because it tends to cross um, <laughs> cross pollinate, if you like. Um, nicotine and caffeine these are all things that affect the brain in the same way in that dopamine center and uh, those same pathways and um, we know for example don't we that people who give up alcohol do and nicotine do tend to start eating more sweet things um, it, it does it does tend to um, they do tend to interact with each other some people with a food addiction problem have to be really careful with nuts and che uh, cheese and dairy. They just seem to trigger off those food cravings in the same way. But that's a sort of individual thing and that can come later on if they're still uh, struggling. But really the, the main thing is to follow up that advice with advising them to connect with um, online groups, um, peer support groups. There, there are a few sort of starting up now and if um, uh, if people want to look at my website, which is forkintheroad.co.uk, which is the same title as the book, um, they'll see resources there that people can look at. Also, the public health collaboration that we keep mentioning, which is the charity that we love, um, are starting to do more on this. And we're going to have a, a website which will be linked from the PHC pages um, with advice and resources for people who who feel that this is their problem. So um, my conclusions would be that more obviously more quality studies are needed um, along with long-term follow-up studies but you know really um, that's only going to come if we probably if we can get recognition of food addiction as a category in the DSM-6 or the ICD-11 and we're we're currently campaigning for that for the ICD uh, 11. Um, if people are interested, as I say, follow the public health collaboration pages because there will be stuff coming soon. Um, there also is a food addiction institute, so you can follow them on social media. Uh, follow me, I'm always tweeting and going on about this topic. So I'm at Jen underscore Unwin on Twitter. That's mostly where I hang out. But as I say, there's the website as well forkintheroad.co.uk. Um, I think, you know, really always consider this possibility. And I think re really it helps people um, to, a lot of the patients that we've worked with have, have really liked this idea of this, this addiction model and it really helps them to stay abstinent. And, um, you know, the current best advice would be a sort of clean keto, low carb, as just as you've heard from David, and add in ongoing peer support because like any other addiction it's a life it's a lifelong 
struggle. So I'm going to try and stop share, although my curse has disappeared. Oh, there we are. There's the thank you so much. They're a bit much. tiny, those references, aren't they? But um, I think you'll be having the. Uh, there we go. Have I done? We will put we will put the references and all the um, links under yeah. the um, great presentation on the LMC website. So thank you, Jen. I just wanted to make time for a few questions. I think I'm really interested as to what the questions will be because I think <laughs> you're actually the first group of GPs that I've um, <laughs> that I've spoken to. So I'll be really interested to to hear what people's questions are. I mean, I th I think it sort of highlights the need to individualise. Um, sort of plans for people and one yeah. what um sort of one lot of advice doesn't fit all and it's really about sort of listening to the patients what are they struggling with and sort of trying to work with them and i think 100 um, percent, it's so unique and anyone who's had this issue tends tends to eventually get to a, a slightly unique solution for themselves you know as to what they end up eating how often they end up eating the kinds of foods that really suit them um and the other things that they've done to sort of aid their recovery so i i completely agree that um mm. there isn't one size fits all other than if it's if it looks like a food if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and it looks like an addiction problem abstinence is the advice <laughs> that's Absolutely. that's the bottom line absolutely and i and, and i think it is very difficult because we're bombarded from all angles with all these different food products yes it has become the new norm so it's really about recalibrating what's normal what's what's um yes acceptable and yes. um it, it is it is difficult and i think it's difficult our brains have been hijacked 100 percent. but i think understanding that and seeing that does help you to to not feel at fault and to not feel blame but to kind of feel a bit cross about it and think right well you know what i'm i'm not going to be taken in by that you know all of that marketing and all of that food nonsense you know i'm going to eat these real foods because you know i feel better when i do it yeah absolutely and i think um that a lot of people have um can associate with some of those qualities if not on the extreme but certainly i think we can all associate yeah. with some of those qualities so it's quite yes. easy to sort of it's understand. definitely a continuum um, yeah yeah it's definitely a continuum so, so, so we've had a question about food addiction. If someone has a food addiction, but they exercise a lot, mm. don't have a high BMI, do, do we still need to intervene? I think this is the question. Oh, that's we... a really good question. And I, I think that would be, again, a down about the person's best hopes. And, and, you know, if they're unhappy that they're driven to exercise to try and maintain that because underlying it is this food addiction problem which there are sometimes that is underlying people who who do massive amounts of cardio so if the person's unhappy with it it's it's an explanation that might might help them i mean if they're if they're happy and they're keeping themselves in balance like that um you know why why would you why would you mess with it really but there there is a question though if you are continually sort of addicted to food spiking your insulin you're spiking your inflammatory markers so you will still get the links of the high cva mi risk and you will still um be one of those potentially thin on the inside fat on the inside i think it can be definitely good to explain that to people um but uh, in terms of behaviour change, 
that might that might be enough uh, so, i mean i know david's had people sometimes where he said all of that stuff but they've not been ready but they've come back a few years later so i think it's really good to lay that out you know that maybe maybe this isn't the healthiest thing to do you know some of these foods can be quite addictive can't they you know uh, uh, do, do you want to try something different and then if people are open to that brilliant if they're not and of course with any addiction um it's got to be the right time some people don't want you know it's the same with alcohol isn't it some people don't want to address it it's not it's not time for them yet because they they <laughs> they need it they love it so much but yeah you it's about introducing that gently and then seeing if they're um if they're wanting to make some changes yeah and i think very much as a gp or as a healthcare role you're planting the seed once the seeds yeah planted it will grow and people will sort of explore more and more in their own time and that's the important it's really important and i think that's the that's the absolute brilliant thing about gps is that you <laughs> you might see them years later but you know you can you can uh, you can plant those you can plant those seeds and you have that ongoing relationship with the population um so if they come back a few years later then that, that's that's great it's that continuity is perfect you can often be pleasantly surprised because i've planted a seed thinking oh this isn't going to go anywhere and they come back you know having done all the research themselves saying well actually i've lost three stone i'm feeling a lot better yeah. it's wonderful so some people some people are really self-starting you know not everybody needs masses of support they just need is that um that piece of information you know sometimes even that that oh you know Oh gosh, yeah, it's like, um, I mean, I'm a psychologist and I didn't realise that I had an addiction problem with food until I was mm. about 48 or something. I mean, it, mm. it, once, I, you, I, once you understand that, you can, you can, uh, you know, it makes all kinds of things a bit different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just putting it into context and then being able to unravel it is important. I, I find that there is a big treat mentality with food and it's been um, passed down through generations. Yes. My husband celebrates every occasion that he possibly can with a treat mentality. And it's quite difficult when you're trying to sort of then help children and role yeah. model to children. And someone has talked about secondary schools just full of processed food. Oh, yeah. Um, ah, and, absolutely. And some, someone else had mentioned, you know, all these celebrations, Easter, Christmas, I know sort of Valentine's, Diwali, birthday. a lot of the other. Um, all based on food yeah I, it's that whole cultural uh cultural and family piece of food is it we're incredibly emotionally connected to it aren't we and um yeah so it it makes it doubly hard to to change these things slowly sort of over time and thinking of other things as as rewarding or you know the fact that just being with the family is lovely it doesn't have to be about kind of you know getting into a chocolate coma mm. <laughs> Uh, or an alcohol coma um but yeah it, it it's challenging i mean you know i i think actually this this whole problem is probably the hardest addiction we we have it from where we're tiny you know two-year-olds uh have you know they, they like they're already liking sugar and, and treats and it it's affect, it affects the developing brain you know it's it's mm -hmm. not an it's not a neutral thing um to to give to a child so it, it it affects the brain we have it from very young it's as you say it's not just tolerated in society it's encouraged and 
Mm. Seen as a little bit weird when you don't eat sugar. I know my colleagues at, at work when I was still in the NHS team did find it a little a little bit odd. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, it, and even in a GP surgery, treat mentality, the trolley, the the, the sweet. Yeah. People will bring you boxes of chocolates as a thank you. Exactly. So I think anyone who manages to um to you know to to live without sugar should you know respect because it it, it is. It is. It does take a long time, and you have to have the the social skills as well to negotiate eating out, to negotiate going to other people's houses, and that's why the long term support's really important. So we have our low carb group on Zoom once a month. So that's what we do for the the patients. Um, but there there are. I mean, if people, if you have patients that that are interested, they you can always message me through the website, and I can link you up with free Zoom meetings for people who are food and sugar addicts there are a few really good practitioners out there who do free meetings that you can hop on once a week um, and it gives people that long-term support and that ability to talk about the challenges and if they have a wobble well everybody goes that's fine just get up and get back on you mm. know it's, it's a lovely community fantastic thank you I think we're going to have to wrap up there someone else has said David and Jen and others involved are you involved at a government level at making inroads and changing like this and I know that you are, and there's a big push for this, but it is a slow yeah. change. It's it's slow, although uh, eight years ago when we started, we were the only people doing this in primary care. And, and now there's, there's lots of interest in it. And uh, you're going to show the videos, aren't you, of all the other doctors in the UK? So I, yeah. I'm optimistic. And if, if people want to know more, just look at the Public Health Collaboration website um, and, and join up, you know, contribute make a donation now that it's going into the daily mail it's going to be um yeah exactly it's mainstream now <laughs> exactly so thank you so much jen that was really interesting and i know both you and your husband are ridiculously busy so we are very very honored to have both of you talking today it was great You're very very welcome i hope it was useful thank you